Well, good morning, and happy Lord's Day to you all. It is Sunday, so we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is Father's Day as well, and so we celebrate that. That comes once a year, the Lord's Day, thankfully, comes every week where we get to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins and celebrate it together. Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 21 to 43 of Mark chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. There's a Bible under your chair. There's a brown pew Bible there. And if you're looking for it, it's page 710. 710, Mark chapter 5. We're going to look at 21 to 43. If you have your own Bible, just look for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You'll see those four names. Mark is the second among those. Pretty big books. Okay, so let me read to you the word of the Lord from Mark 5, 21 to 43. When Jesus had crossed again over, had crossed over again by boat to the other side of the sea, a large crowd gathered around him while he was, while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He kept begging him, My little daughter's at death's door. Come and lay your hands on her so she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing against him. A woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his robe. For she said, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was cured of her affliction. At once, Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my robes? His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing against you, and you say, who touched me? So he was looking around to see who had done this. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came with fear and trembling, fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be free from your affliction. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? But when Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, Don't be afraid, only believe. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James' brother. They came to the leader's house, and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. They started laughing at him, but he put them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him and entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this, they were utterly astounded. 
Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and said that she should be given something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you again that on this Father's Day we can hear a word from you, our Father in heaven. We praise you that you have come to speak to us, Jesus the Messiah, the Savior of our souls, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We praise you that we can hear about him this morning. We praise you, Father, that you're speaking and that your spirit is working amongst us, even in the very reading of your word and the very singing of your word and the very praying of your word. And now we are going to meditate on the preaching of your word. And we're asking for, asking for your spirit to keep moving and changing and transforming us and showing us the glory of Jesus Christ so that we would be changed from one degree of glory to the next. It is sweet to trust in Jesus. And we pray that by your grace, we would trust him more. Oh, for grace to trust him more. In Jesus' name we ask for your help. Amen. Happy Father's Day. It is the Father's Day, so I want to say happy Father's Day to all of you dads out there. And even happy Father's Day to all you men who, like Leslie prayed, have sought to bring godly influence in doing good to other people's lives. Our culture is a culture that is confused on what manhood and womanhood is in our day, right? And so most people, even you know, in churches, can't answer this question, what makes a man a man and not a woman? Or what makes a woman a woman and not a man? Uh, most people don't have a good biblical answer to that, but we should, and maybe I should be preaching on that at some point. But today, we're going to read a story about a father, or we just read, and we're going to think about a story about a father who had great love for his daughter. Now, from this pulpit, I do expository preaching. That is, the content and intent of the passage controls the content and intent of my preaching. So, instead, so, you know, instead of just taking a passage and then using it as a diving board to just talk about whatever I want to talk about, you know, I read a text and then just get a little theme and then just say whatever I want to say. Instead of doing something like that, that looks like I'm preaching the word, um, expository preaching is just taking the content, what the passage says, and what it's intended to do, and then letting that control and shape the message. So I'm not going to use this text to jump off into a Father's Day sermon about five tips to be a better dad, or something like that. Um, Though, uh, we want to submit ourselves to the content and intent of this passage and let God address us. Now, there are some things here that we as fathers can learn For our fatherhood, but um, we'll let that be off to the side, and you'll pick it up even as you hear the story. We're going to focus on what the main point of this passage is and let it land on our hearts and minds this morning. Okay, so let me retell you the story that I just read. Now, Jairus is a synagogue leader. He has a 12-year-old daughter who's dying. She hasn't got well. Maybe she had a fever. It's been days. Days turn into weeks. Weeks turn into many weeks, maybe a month or two months. And not only is the the fever sustaining itself, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And his 12-year-old girl is dying. As a dad, you would know that um, you wouldn't want to leave your daughter's side, right? Under no circumstances do you want to be separated from your daughter in those types of moments. And yet, Jairus decides to leave his daughter's bedside. What What would cause a man who loves his daughter to leave his daughter while she's dying. There's only one good reason to do it, to get, to get help, right? 
to get a miracle worker, to get someone who can actually do something about her, her impending death. And so Jairus was not an unknown person in the community. He was well-known. He was a synagogue leader. Maybe like a pastor, one of the associate pastors, if you have, in a church where a lot of people know the pastor in the town, especially in those smaller towns. Not only that, everyone generally knows if, you have, if you're a pastor and you have one child or one daughter, everyone would know who that daughter is, right? And so here, this synagogue leader has one daughter, and so everyone presumably would know, or most people would know, who this daughter was, who this 12-year-old sweet little girl was. And so Jairus leaves his daughter and goes off into the town trying to find Jesus. Why Jesus? He's trying to find Jesus because he's heard about Jesus, right? Now, a synagogue leader, generally the synagogue leaders and Jesus didn't get along, somewhat, Right. Eventually, it got worse and worse as time went on. But here, when you're desperate and your daughter's on death's doorstep, you're going to do whatever it takes to save your daughter. And so what does he do? He leaves. He finds Jesus. There is Jesus gathered at the, at the shore of the sea or the lake. And there's crowds around him. It's not hard to find Jesus. Just look for the crowd, right? You look for the crowd, you'll find Jesus. Who's everyone staring at? Who's everyone looking at? It's Jesus. Okay, you found Jesus. So he runs up to Jesus, squeezes through the crowd, and falls right at his feet. Dirty feet. All feet were dirty back then. Open sandals, no paved roads. Animals walk on these roads and they do their business on the roads as they walk and it gets all over your feet while you're walking, which is why foot washing is such a big deal and only servants do foot washing. And here is a man who's a leader in the town, a religious and civil leader in the town falling at the dirty feet of Jesus. He doesn't care about his dignity. He doesn't care about his position. He doesn't care about what it looks like to other people. All he cares about is his daughter. He'll do whatever it takes. If it means he has to fall on his knees at the feet of Jesus to get his attention, he'll do it. And he does it. He falls right at the feet of Jesus. And he begs Jesus to come with him. He says, my daughter is dying. She's at death's doorstep. Please come, lay your hands on her so that she might get saved and live. She might get well and live. Wow. What a, what a situation. Now, uh, just I mean, to be honest, I, I never wanted daughters. I have three daughters, by God's grace. Right? I, I didn't want daughters. It's, why, why didn't I, I, I didn't want daughters because I was, I'm scared. I'm still scared. I was scared. I am scared to parent them through the teen years. You know, I, I, that terrifies me to, to see their glazed look in their eyes when some loser guy comes around and, you know... <laughs> talks sweet nothings to her and no matter what the bible says or what i say or what her uncles and aunties say or what her church family says she's just gonna run off again i'm being pessimistic here but that's my fear right and so every time my my wife got pregnant pray for a boy they would get the ultrasound it's a girl no i'm still gonna pray you know could be wrong right and so i pray all the way until the baby comes out girl next one girl next one girl got one boy Right, And so um, God gave me three daughters. But you know what? I absolutely love my daughters. Now, I, I didn't grow up with any sisters either. So I don't know. I don't even know. I didn't know how to interact with, with women in the home. Right? And so um, I love my daughters. And I love being a father of daughters. I do. I love it. I love them. I love being their dad. And I love that my wife loves it too. She really wanted me to have daughters. And if my daughter... Any of the three were at death's door. I would do anything I could to save them, to save her. Anything I could to do, 
I would do it. So it's not hard for me to imagine what would be going on in this text. I mean, even in our family, in my family, you know, we, we've had a tragedy like this where one of our, one of our, one of my nieces um, passed away at a young age in her teen years, and, and similar situation to something like this. It's not hard to imagine the desperation on Jairus's heart in this moment. Now his request is in verse 23 that Jesus would lay his hands on her so that she would get well. So does Jesus agree or disagree to go? He agrees and goes, right? Look at verse 24. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing in. So he wants to go. Now everyone knows Jairus. So you hear that in the crowd. You hear that that request. You see this leader at the feet of Jesus, and everyone hushes to hear what he's talking about. They hear the request. Jesus says, okay, let's go. So guess what everyone else wants to do? They want to go too, right? They want to see what Jesus is going to do. I mean, Jesus was a hot commodity in one sense. He was a hot ticket, right? What he did, the things he did, no one did. Not even Elijah and Elisha did the frequency of miracles that Jesus did. And so you wanted to see these things. You wanted to find out if this was true. You might have heard about it, but you get a chance to see it. You see the request. I'd be following. I'd be tracking along and pushing people out of my way just to get a glimpse of Jesus healing someone who's about to die. So the crowd follows, and the crowd presses in on Jesus. And as they're pressing in on Jesus, we, we read in verse 25, a woman in the crowd who doesn't have a name, she's nameless here, she has a name, but we're not given the name, she's been bleeding for 12 years, and she's seen many doctors. She's actually spent all of her money on doctors. She's never gotten better. She, had a, she has a bleeding problem for 12 years, and she's never gotten better. She, she's, not only has she not gotten better, as she spends money, she's gotten what? Worse, right? Verse 26, on the contrary, she became worse. And so what does she do? Look at verse 27. She goes to find Jesus. Why does she go to find Jesus in verse 27? Because what? She heard about Jesus. You see that in verse 27? Having heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd. So she goes, she hears about Jesus, she weaves her way into a tight-pressed crowd, she squeezes through, and she gets to Jesus. He's within reach now. She reaches out, grabs his robe. And as she grabs his robe and then lets go in the crowd, she, she's immediately healed. Her blood stops. She's immediately healed. Now, this kind of bleeding problem that she had, keep in mind, was you can read about it in Leviticus 15, verses 19 and following. This is a, you know, when a woman is on her menstrual cycle, and it says that during that period, they are ceremon- women are ceremonially unclean. But if it continues past their seven days, then they remain ceremonially unclean until they finish their, their period, their time, right? And not only that, if they touch a bed, the bed is dirty. If they sit on a chair, that chair is considered unclean. And whatever they touch becomes ceremonially unclean. Whoever they touch becomes ceremonially unclean. Okay, it's not a sin to touch people. It's not like leprosy in that regard where you're going to spread a disease. But ceremonially, in terms of worshiping God in the temple, you are ceremonially unclean if you touch someone or if you touch things. And so this woman hasn't had it for one week. For two weeks, not even for 12 weeks, but for how long? 12 years. Imagine what kind of social isolation that puts you in, even with those around you, because you are ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. Just for the, You can't even remember the last time you were ceremonially clean and didn't have a, a guilty, conflicted conscience when you touched somebody, maybe a family member to give them a hug. 
So she touches Jesus' robe, and immediately she's healed. Instantly. And she knows it. She feels it. She was cured from her affliction. Immediately now, Jesus now Jesus is walking. And you got to think, Jesus is not walking slowly. This is like an ambulance, right? You got the siren going. And what, you got someone at death's door. You put the siren on. You turn on your running red lights. And you're just trying to get to the, to the dying patient as quick as possible, right? And the dad is like, come on, you know, Jairus. He's begging, so he's not going to be um, audacious about it or rude about it. But he wants Jesus to hurry up, right? So let's go, let's go. And they're moving, they're moving fast. People are pressing. Jesus gets touched and he stops. Don't stop. What are you doing? We need to go. My daughter's about to die. He stops, looks around. He says, who touched me? The disciples are frustrated about this. Disciples love this girl too. They wanted to see her healed and they knew Jesus could do it. So the disciples actually, you can almost read it, and maybe I'm reading into it. Maybe, maybe you shouldn't read into it. This is the way I'm reading it. When you get to verse 31, and he asks, who touched me? Um, the disciples say in verse um, 30, what was it? In verse 31, the, the disciples told him, you see the crowd pressing against you, and you say, who touched me? They're kind of frustrated. Are you kidding me, Jesus? What do you mean, who touched you? There's hundreds of people here. There's people pressing in on us as we're trying to get through on, you know, a 911 type call, of course people are touching you. What do you mean who touched you? Everyone is touching you. I touched you. Lots of people touched you. Jesus will not be deterred by the frustration of his disciples. He just stands there, starts looking around. Someone here touched me. We're not moving until I find out who touched me. You can imagine this, this lady who touched Jesus and started to slip away in the crowd, right? She had to be known. Twelve years in the same town, right? With, with this being ceremonially unclean. People had to know her in that regard. She shouldn't even be there. She's making everyone who she's touching along the way ceremonially unclean in the crowd, right? She shouldn't even be there. So she touches and tries to slink away quietly. And as she's walking away, Jesus stops. And she knows the parade that's going on. She knows what Jesus is trying to do. So she, she you know, now she's conflicted. Do I stop? Do I just run as fast as I can? I'm healthy now. Maybe I can just run, right? I can make a run for it now. What do I do? You know, now her conscience is conflicted. He knows. He knows, right? She's, you can imagine like everyone facing Jesus, like, what do you mean who touched you? And she's like the only one not facing Jesus, right? Turn around the other way and be like, he knows, right? She turns around slowly. She goes to Jesus at his feet, bows down before him. It says in verse 32 or 33, the woman, knowing what happened to her, she came with fear and trembling, fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. It was me. I did it. I did it. I was ble- You know, she's explained the situation. I needed to touch you. She felt guilty. Not only, why, why would she feel guilty? Why would she feel guilty? Well, why would she feel scared? Maybe she didn't get permission, right? Most people, when they get a miracle from Jesus, they ask him. This woman didn't ask for a miracle. She what? She took it, right? She just took it. So maybe she felt guilty about that. Maybe she feels guilty because she knows she's ceremonially unclean and she's touching all these people, making them ceremonially unclean. And maybe even, maybe even the possibility of making Jesus ceremonially unclean by touching him. Maybe that's why she felt scared and guilty. She knew she would be embarrassed. Everyone would know. Everyone knew that she shouldn't have been in the crowd and she was there. And now for him to, to point her out. Now you've got to imagine everyone is hushing quiet, right? When he stops and says, who touched me? 
Everyone wants him to move. He refuses to move. Everyone is now frustrated with her because not only is she not supposed to be there, she's stalling the ambulance, right? It's like get, getting in the way. And she stops the ambulance. Now she knows the urgency of the situation. And now she's the one who stopped it. Now if this child dies, you could say in part it might be her, her fault, right? And everyone knows this synagogue leader and his daughter. Man, that's a, that's a lot to be fearful of. And so she was scared as she comes to Jesus. And what does Jesus say in verse 34? What does he call her? Daughter. Daughter. What was on Jairus' mind the whole time? Daughter, right? What are you doing stopping Jesus? My daughter. Let's go. My daughter. Jesus waits. How long did he wait? Five minutes? How long is this conversation? We're not told. We read it in 20 seconds, right? It wasn't 20 seconds. Minute? Five minutes? Ten minutes? All Jairus is thinking is, my daughter. And Jesus looks at this woman and says, daughter, your faith has made you well or has saved you. Go in peace and be free from your affliction. Jesus is calling this woman daughter as if he was her true father. Yes, father. Jesus represents the Father. If you've seen me, Jesus said you've seen the Father. Jesus represents God the Father. And that's what he did here. He's showing what true fatherhood is like. He's showing, he's showing that the Father cares for his daughters. The Father cares for this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. Now Jairus is learning, or should have learned at this point, that God is the true Father who cares for his children. Not only does God the Father care for this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, God the Father cares for who? Jairus' daughter, right? He should have been learning that lesson. God the Father cares for our children even more than earthly fathers care for their children. What gift, right? What a gift. What grace. For me, this is one of the things that secures me. I mean, we sing Because He Lives. You know, it says how sweet to hold a newborn baby and think about all the pain they're going to go through their life. But because Jesus lives... We know that our children can face uncertain days. That's what I, that's what I cling to, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If I'm gonna, God gave, you gave me three daughters. Why, Lord? I don't know. But I, because you live, I'm just going to have to trust you. And it's comforting to know that God the Father cares for his daughter, cares for my daughter more than I care for my daughter. And we get that here when Jesus calls this woman daughter. Okay, side Father's Day note. Just a side note for Father's Day. Because it's Father's Day. Got to say a little something here for Father's Day. Let us, if you have a father, let us praise God for our father's efforts, our earthly dad's efforts and actions that imitated and displayed the father in heaven. That's what fatherhood is, right? The essence of fatherhood is to display personally, personally tangibly to my kids, God the Father. Not in everything. I'm not omnipresent. I'm not omniscient. I don't know everything. But in, in the ways I love and lead and provide for and protect and teach and serve and train my kids, I'm displaying to them, I ought to be displaying to them, the Father in heaven. And we need to pause and just thank God for our fathers. I need to pause and thank God for my dad who has displayed for me a love for God and showed me the glory of God. That's what fathers do. Our job is to display him. Not to replace him because we can't, but to display him to our children so that they learn to love and depend on God the Father through our example and through our teaching. And let me just say something to the fathers. If you are a dad who 
um, feels guilty, well, in one sense, all dads should feel guilty, right? Because we're all sinners. And we've all, none of us have fathered perfectly, right? Amen? I hope you fathers feel comfort that you're in a group of a bunch of fathers who have failed in some ways, right? We've all been guilty. But even asking our children, whether young or old, asking our children to forgive us for our failure and sin of not glorifying the Father in heaven in our fathering of our children, guess who that glorifies when we ask our children for forgiveness? Who do we glorify in that? God. And who do our kids, even our grown kids, see when we apologize to our kids and ask them for forgiveness for our sins and our failure as fathers? Who are we displaying? The Father. And what are we doing in that moment? We're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Displaying the Father. So I don't want Father's Day to be this big thing about perfection and, and all the good things you've done as if we can't admit our failures. Admitting your fail, failures, admitting your sin, confessing it to God and confessing it to your children and asking them, looking them in the eye and saying, please forgive me for my impatience. Please forgive me for my irritability. Please forgive me for fill in the blank. Do you forgive me? And letting your children respond. Whether they say yes or no, you are displaying the glory of God the Father. I just want to encourage you fathers. Because of the grace of God, you have a mighty weapon to display God's grace to your children. Whether you succeed or whether you failed in, in various instances. Okay, so back to Jairus here. Here's Jairus. Side note on Father's Day. That's my Father's Day sermon. Good. So now back, back here. The daughter here, this daughter, this woman of 12 years, she secures... What Jairus is hoping for. What is Jairus hoping for his daughter? That Jesus would come and heal her, right? And what does he see right in front of her? A woman who secures that very request that Jesus wants to secure, or that, that Jairus wants to secure. And what saved her in verse 34? What does Jesus say? What saved her or made her well? Her faith, right? And so he says, um, go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with favor and give you peace. That's the divine blessing that Aaron, the priest, says to the people of Israel. That's the blessing of peace for a cursed people who deserve the curse and no peace. Right? We deserve wrath and judgment. When God declares peace on us, saving grace, peace with him. Right? Romans 5.1. Uh, we, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is what he's, what he's declaring here. That she, through her faith, not only is she saved physically, but she has peace the blessing of God, or what we could call salvation. Okay, so then as this woman is getting this declaration, Jesus has had his five or ten minutes. Jairus is just trembling in fear, looking at his watch. They don't have watches in that day, but he's just looking at the sun as the shadow keeps moving, right? And he's just like, let's go. My daughter is going to die. Let's go. And as they're like, okay, let's go again. As soon as, they, maybe as soon as they're about to resume, or maybe even before they begin to resume, one from Jairus' house, which is not too far away, comes to Jesus... And to Jairus and says to Jairus, your daughter has died. Let's not bother the teacher anymore. It's, in other words, it's too late. We're too late. Good try. It's worth the shot. You won't regret it, but we're too late. Let's not bother Jesus anymore. Let's not bother the teacher anymore. Now, Jesus overhears that and he says, he, he interrupts them and says to, to this man, he says, don't be afraid. Just Belief. Just trust. Just trust. And so, Jairus gets up and he goes. He says, well, what else am I going to do? My daughter's already dead, right? I, what, am I, what can I lose now? Let's go. I, I trust you. Fine, I'll trust whatever you say. Let's just go. 
So Jesus says, let's go. So Jesus says, I'm only going to take three with you. Peter, James, John, you three come with me. The other, you nine, you guys stay here. So the three of them go with the father and they rush to the house. They get to the house. When they get to the house, people are there. People are crying and wailing because the daughter has just died. There are mourners there, professional mourners and, and family and friends. And they're just crying and weeping. And as they're crying and weeping, Jesus comes in and says to them, why are you guys crying? She's not dead. She's only sleeping. And what do they do? They laugh at him. What a moron. Like we don't know what death is. Really? Sleeping? You think we're just crying here because we've never seen someone die before? And so they laugh at Jesus. They deride him. They mock him. They make fun of him. But like always, Jesus doesn't care. In one sense, right? He rises above the criticism and just keeps moving and doing what God wants him to do. So he takes, he, go, he goes in, they get inside, they get inside the house, they get inside the place where she is, where she's laying down. And as they get there, the mother's there, right? Not leaving her daughter's side. Mom gets up, walks to her husband, buries her wet face in his chest, and just starts weeping. She's gone. She's gone. She's gone. She's gone. Can't believe it. Husband, trying to hold himself together. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Don't be afraid. Just He's thinking that in his heart, right? He just told me, I can't, I, can't, I can't be afraid. He's right here. He just told me, don't be afraid. Just believe. Don't be afraid. Just believe. And, and here's his wife weeping. She's gone. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Okay. Jesus there moves towards the lifeless body laying down, grabs her hand and gently says to her what you might say to your daughter, what I say to my seven-year-old daughter when I wake her up. It's time to get up, baby. Baby, get up. That's what Talitha is. It's not little girl. You know, little girl, dad doesn't call, I mean, unless you call your daughter little girl, maybe honey would be a good translation. What what, What are the, it's like a pet name for your daughter. Whatever that pet name is for your daughter, that's what he's using. He's talking as if he's a father. And he's saying, honey, baby, it's time to get up. What did he just tell the crowd outside? That, that she's what? Sleeping, right? Gets in there, baby, it's time to get up. That's what I would do. Shake my daughter on the shoulder, right? It's time to get up, baby. And that's what Jesus does. And what does she do? <gasps> Air, right into her lungs, right? Starts breathing again. Heart starts beating. She wakes up, sees Jesus, sits up, gets up. Starts walking around. Jesus says to the three disciples and the two parents, don't say a word to anyone. And get her some macaroni and cheese. (laughs) All 12-year-old girls like macaroni and cheese, right? Get her some mac and cheese. She's hungry. And so they do that, and that's the end of the story. That's what Jesus did. Now, it took a long time to say this because I I wanted to let the story just kind of sit on us this Father's Day. That's, that's what it is. But, but from here, not in four long points, but four brief points of application, what do you think the main point of this text is? What does God want us to do? It says there twice. It's in verse 34 and verse 36. What does God want us to do? In verse 34 and 36. Believe, right? What did he say to this woman? Your what? What has made you well? Your faith has made you well. Your belief has made you well. Your trust. Faith, belief, and trust are all the same word in the Greek, in the New Testament language. In English, we have three words for the same word. Your faith, your trust, your belief has made you well. And then what does he say to, the, to, to Jairus as he's there panicking? Don't be afraid, only what? 
Only believe. Just trust me. Just have faith. That's the main point. The main point that God wants you to have this Father's Day is trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. That's the main point. Trust Jesus. Now, what is trusting Jesus? What is trust or what is faith? Faith is not what people say faith is today. Some people say faith is merely intellectual agreement. As long as I think it was true, that's faith. That's not saving faith. That's not the faith Jesus is asking for here. A lot of people say, are you a man of faith? Are you a woman of faith? Or man, that person's a person of great faith. Is that good or bad? Well, it depends. What what we mean by when we say that person is a person of faith is we're saying that is a religious person, right? So when we say, what is your faith? We're just asking you, what is your religion? Or what is your religious preference? That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, make me your religious preference. Sign up and tick the box for religion, Christianity. That's not what he's saying here when he's talking about faith. Faith is not even here. He's not, faith is not merely sincere belief. Some people think, what is faith? It's sincerely believing something. That's not the whole picture of biblical faith. Why not? In 1 Corinthians 15, 19, Jesus said, or Paul said, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we're of all men most to be pitied and we are without hope. Our faith is what? Empty. It's vain. In other words, in biblical faith, you only need to believe, you only should believe what is actually true. If it's not true, should you believe it? No. That's not what the way people talk about faith religiously today. People say, you know, like, you know, if I'm sharing the gospel with a non-Christian, they're saying, hey, you have your faith, I have my faith. Neither of us are right or wrong. Everyone just should respect each other's faith. I understand where they're coming from with that. That's not what the Bible's talking about when it talks about faith. It's saying that there is a right faith. And if you believe the wrong thing, if you believe Jesus rose from the dead and he actually didn't rise from the dead, your faith is worthless. You're wasting your time sitting here today. So faith is not just, I sincerely believe it. You can sincerely believe something wrong and, and pay for it, right? If I sincerely believe I could fly without a plane and I jump off a building and I say, but you don't know my heart. Don't question my heart. Deep down, I sincerely believe this. I, I'll even prove it to you. I'll jump. Well, is that going to save me? So, am I, is it going to come? To, no, because you could sincerely believe something wrong. And if it's wrong, it's wrong. And, and your faith was worthless. Not only that, it's tragic because now I'm dead, right? Or injured. And so faith needs to be faith in the truth. So what is faith? Faith is responding to God's revealed truth with enough confidence to lean into action. That's what they're doing. They're just leaning into action. Just enough confidence in Jesus, in God's revealed truth, to lean into action. Because think about Jairus. His daughter just died. And what does Jesus say? Don't be afraid, only what? Believe. Now, is, is Jairus at that point completely 100% confident in what's going to happen? No. But does he have enough confidence in Jesus that he's going to lean into action and actually keep going and, and take him to his daughter? Yes. Your faith could be as small as a mustard seed. But if you're leaning into obedience, into trusting Jesus, to action, that's, that's faith. Faith causes action. Okay? And so, there's four things here I want you to trust about Jesus. I'll just tell you the four right now. Trust Jesus' reputation. Trust Jesus' words. Trust Jesus' power. And trust Jesus' timing. Okay? So trust is... Reputation, trust his words, trust his power, and trust his timing. Okay? Let's go to the first one. Trust Jesus' reputation. Why did this woman, with the 12 years of a bleeding problem, why did she go to Jesus? According to verse 27? Because she what about Jesus? She heard about Jesus. In other words, she heard his reputation. 
Has she ever met Jesus? No. But she heard her reputation and it was enough to explore. I want to talk to non-Christians for a second. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, you're saying, I don't know if I trust in Jesus. I don't know if this story is true. I mean, really? Raising a person from the dead? This sounds sort of ridiculous. What I want to tell you, non-Christian friend, is I want to plead with you to at least trust Jesus enough, his reputation, among, among the two billion who profess that Jesus is God in the world today, trust his reputation enough to explore whether Jesus is actually true or not. Is that, is that okay for me to ask of you, non-Christian friend? I mean, you're here today. Thank you for coming. You don't have to come to church on a Sunday as a non-Christian. But if you're here this morning, I want to thank you for being here. We welcome you here. We're glad you're here. And we just want to encourage you to explore who Jesus is. What have you heard about Jesus? And is that enough to make you want to keep exploring who Jesus is? We have a red book called Who is Jesus? And if you're a first-time visitor here, um, at the back when I'm at the door... Um, I'll ask one of our church members to go grab some of the books. And then if, if you're at the door and you're a first-time visitor here and you're not a Christian, I want to give you that book, Who is Jesus? Our church wants to give you that book to explore who Jesus is. If you want to know more about Jesus, please ask. We want to tell you, trust Jesus' reputation, at least enough to explore further. Read the Bible and think about who he is. That's the first thing, trust his reputation. Number two, trust Jesus' words. Look at verse 36 again. Look at verse 36 of the story. What were Jesus' words to Jairus? See it there in verse 36? What were they? Don't be afraid. What? Only believe. What is Jairus supposed to hang on when he just heard his daughter died? Words. That's what he has. Words. My daughter's dead and all you give me are words. But you know what? Faith comes by hearing. Hearing the word of Christ. That's all you need. If they're true words, if they're powerful words, if, there's God, if they're God's words, what you need in suffering are words. True words. God's words. And so all he gets is words. And so he, he trusts Jesus' words enough to lean in and actually follow through with seeing if, if something good will happen. So that's my second point. Not only trust Jesus' reputation, more importantly, you can't just lean on reputation. That's not enough. Because if you Google Jesus, right, try Googling Jesus on the Internet or do a search for Jesus, you're going to get like five million or five billion pages. And there's going to be a lot of false things there. So I'm not saying just do that. What I'm saying is trust his reputation enough to explore. Then look at his words. These Bible, this Bible is the words of God. It reveals Jesus perfectly from cover to cover. From Genesis to Revelation, this book is a book about Jesus. In the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is revealed. In Acts, Jesus is proclaimed. In the letters, the epistles, Jesus is explained. And in the Revelation, Jesus is expected. This whole book is a book about Jesus. These are the words of God. And I want to call you, non-Christians and Christians, to read and hear the words of Jesus. What you need is to hear the words and then trust the words of Jesus. As a church family, we need to be brothers and sisters who take glasses and we, we put it on the eyes of our fellow church members. What do I mean by that? We take the words of God and we, put, we, we speak them to each other. And you know what we do? When you speak the word of God to a fellow church member, you know what you do? You're taking glasses because you see God. You see God's interaction. And you're saying, hey, try these on. And you put it on them. And they, they hear God's words. They put it on and they say, oh, I do see the glory of God here. I do see God's grace. 
I do see that God hasn't left us. I do see my sin now, and I do see that I need to repent. When you take God's words and you speak it to each other in this church family, we give each other eyes to see the glory of the Father. And that's how a church grows. So I want to challenge us as a church family, the 73 active members that I have here on my prayer list, and all those who are going to join our church, we need to speak God's words to each other and trust the words of Jesus. Christian friend, the Lord Jesus is telling you not to be afraid in your trial and your circumstance. Trust in the one who will work all things together for your what? Good. God will work all things together for your good. Romans 8, 28. If you're called, if you're in Christ Jesus, right? For those who are called, for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. All things will work together for your good. Is that true? Your sickness, your grief, your pain, your trials and your troubles. Nine of your friends dead from your church family because they got shot by a racist action. Is that going to work together for your good? What does Jesus say to that? Don't be afraid. Only what? Believe. Trust my words. It doesn't look like it's going to work together for your good, but it will. Trust my words. So trust Jesus' reputation, trust his words. Thirdly, trust Jesus' power. His power. What did Jesus have the power to do? Two things here. To the woman, the 12-year bleeding woman, what, what, he had the power to do what? Power to heal. For this, this uh, young little girl, the power to what? Raise from the Raised from the dead, right? And so here you need to, you need to, not just us, not just the story, but us today, 2015, First Southern Baptist Church of Bellflower, and anyone here, you need to trust Jesus' power to heal and his power to give life to the dead. His power to give life to the dead. The, the dead. Now, is God promising here, through this passage, that he's going to heal every disease that you have? Is that what he's promising here? Is he promising here that when you die, or when your friend dies, he's going to come and raise them from the dead? Is that the promise? Is that how we apply the story? No. No, he won't heal us every time we get sick. No, he won't raise our friends and family when they die so that they could die again. This woman died twice, keep in mind. Right? Praise God for that miracle, but you die twice too. That's not fun, right? Um, is that what God promises us? No. Well, not yet. He doesn't promise us that yet. It's even better than this. How is this better? How does what Jesus promised us better than Jairus? I mean, do you wish you could have Jesus come and heal one of your friends right now? Don't, don't we all wish that we could just pick one person, all of us have someone in mind, where we could just be like, if Jesus said, hey, I'll give you one person that I'll, I'll, do, I'll heal from their sickness completely. We all have someone, right? But how is this better for us than it was for them? Here's how. Remember what Jesus did when he was walking? The woman touches his robe, and what happens? What goes out of him? Power goes out of him, and he stops, and he says, Who touched me? Because he felt power go out of him. Jesus was weakened, and he felt it. For this woman to get strength, Jesus had to become weak. He had to become weak. And this isn't the last time he would become weak, right? 2 Corinthians 13, 4 says, In fact, he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by God's power. Jesus weakened himself here to give her strength. This is the only time in the whole story of Jesus where he actually felt his power leave. He did many miracles. He just stilled the storm, right? But here in this moment, he feels power go out and he had to become weak so that she would be strengthened. 
and become strong. And isn't that what Jesus did on the cross for us? He becomes weak. He becomes a servant, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He dies for our sins so that we sinners who are sick and dying can be healed. He bears our sicknesses. For him to heal us from sickness, he has to bear our sicknesses. For him to raise the dead, he has to die in our place. For him to save us from our sins, he has to bear our sins on his body, on the tree, and take the death and the curse that comes with our sins. If you're not a Christian, God is telling you this morning that he made you. He made you and he owns you and he owns me. He owns us all. He's our creator and we are accountable to him. And you know what our problem is? We were made in his image, which is not a problem. That's a blessing. We're made in God's image to reflect and enjoy him. Our problem is that we have sinned against God. We have rejected him. And we didn't want to reflect him being made in his image. We want to reflect our own glory or the glory of our job or the glory of our family or the glory of our physical health and fitness or the glory of our money or the glory of our possessions. We want to reflect something else. And that's our sin, is that we build our lives on something other than God. If God is not the center of your life, something else is. And we call that idolatry. We call that worshiping a false God. We call that sin. And everyone here is guilty of it. Christian and non-Christian. We've all been guilty of idolatry. And the problem is, the wages of sin, the penalty of sin, is eternal death. But here's the good news. Jesus Christ takes, he lives the life we should have lived, he dies on the cross for our sins, and he rises from the dead. So that, non-Christian friend, if you would turn from your sins this morning and trust in Jesus, if you'd call out on the Lord to save you from your sins, he will save you. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I'm telling you, on the authority of God's word this morning, call on Jesus to save you from your sins. Ask him to forgive you. Repent from your sins. Turn from it and trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for you. And he will forgive you of your sins. He will give you new life. He will make you alive together in Christ because we're dead in our sins. And not only will he do that, he will give you his Holy Spirit to begin to transform you forever and ever and ever. That's God's promise to you. That's God's offer to you today if you're not a Christian. If you're a Christian, what is God telling us? He's telling us this. That the joy we have is better than Jairus' joy. Because what did Jairus have to do? He had to wait, right? This woman gets healed, and what does he have to do? He has to sit there and wait for five minutes, ten minutes. And then what does he get in the end? His daughter gets to be raised from the dead, right? Is that a blessing? Yes, right? Would you think that's a small price to pay? Wait ten minutes of intense anxiety, right? Almost like a heart attack yourself anxiety to get your daughter raised. Would you, would you have done that? Would you have said that's worth it? Yeah, right? It's a pretty good deal. But we have it better than Jairus. Why? Because our blessing is more permanent and final, but our delay is also longer. He had to wait five or ten minutes. He gets his daughter back from the dead. Right? We have to wait longer than, than a few minutes or an hour. We have to wait our whole life. We actually have to go through death. But when we die, what do we get in the end? Especially when Jesus comes back again. We get a resurrection from the dead where we will never, ever die again. This woman, this daughter died again. Our blessing is going to be better because we get raised from the dead and we will never die when he wakes us up from our sleep. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14, it says this, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep 
so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. That's those who have died. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. We will rise from the dead. So our, our resurrection is better than this little girl's resurrection. Amen? But our delay is longer. You've got to suffer for a lot longer than five or ten minutes or a few hours. But it's worth it. And when does Jesus pronounce peace for this, for this woman? In Mark chapter 5. Look at verse 34. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. When did he declare peace to her? When she touched his robe? No. No peace yet. Now, she got healed right away, right? Touch the robe, you get healed. But did she get peace? No, not yet. What did she have to do? She had to come out in public, bow before Jesus, and publicly identify with him. Then he said, your faith has saved you. Not just, not just healed you from your sickness, but now you have the peace of God. Because you have publicly identified by trusting in me and even coming forward and in front of everyone to your own shame and embarrassment, right? She was shamed, right? She was ashamed. She didn't want to come forward. But even then, she comes forward and confesses her uncleanness, confesses her need, and eventually she gets, or, and then Jesus declares to her that she is, she has the peace of God, wholeness. Christian, if you're a Christian here today, here's my question to you. Have you publicly presented yourself as one identifying with Jesus? If you say you, you trust in Jesus, have you publicly identified with him? Now, don't answer this question out loud. I'm just, I'm fearful that someone might get the wrong answer. So don't answer this question out loud. Do you know how you're supposed to publicly identify with Jesus? Don't answer out loud. We have one thing, and it's right here behind me. Baptism, right? If, you're, if you trust in Jesus, that's the New Testament way of publicly identifying with Jesus. If you have trusted in Jesus, have you been baptized? You need to be. You need to publicly identify with him. Baptism doesn't save you. But it reveals that you have trusted in Jesus and that you, your faith is really real. So, And you're saying, well, I've already been baptized. Well, the, the other way to publicly identify with Jesus is joining a local church as a church member, which is why we hold baptism and, and church membership together because that's a public way where you're on a list where people actually say, yeah, I'm a Christian and I'm with these Christians in this church and you can hold me accountable publicly as a Christian. And so publicly identify with Jesus. And if you're not sure you're a Christian, Jesus is calling you to trust in him. Last one here. Okay, number four. So trust Jesus' reputation, trust his words, trust his power, and lastly, trust Jesus' timing. Trust his timing. Jesus was late, wasn't he? By our, by our calculations. If you're Jairus, if you're, if you're Jairus' wife, the mom, and your daughter, you're there in the, in, at the deathbed, was Jesus late? Yeah, right? My daughter died. He was late by everyone's calculations except whose? His own, Right? Jesus knew the Spirit was leading him, and he knew what he could do, and he knew that God would, would work it out, and he knew that he would be good. It would have been nice for Jairus to skip death, to skip the death of the daughter, right? And for Jesus to not delay. That would have been nice, to just skip it. He wanted to rush Jesus. It would have been nice to rush Jesus, get rid of this whole resurrection thing, and just heal her from her sickness, and it would have been all good. But you can't skip the delay. You have to go through the delay. Even for us, we can't just skip straight to heaven. We have to go through this life, suffer, and then get resurrected, right? We all have to suffer in this life. Jesus said, in this world you'll have suffering. If the world hated me, they will also hate you. We have to suffer in this life. That's just part of what it means to be Christian. We can't skip the delay. And why can't we skip the delay? Why can't we rush God? Why couldn't Jairus just rush Jesus? Why can't we rush God? Because Jesus couldn't rush God. Remember when Jesus is in the garden? He says, let this cup, what? 
be passed from me. Can we just skip this part? Can we skip the delay of getting to heaven? Can I just get there already? And what does God say? Yes or no to Jesus? No. You can't let this cup be passed from you. You have So when we feel like rushing God, just know that there was someone else who wanted to rush God. Jesus. But Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And that's what we need to do too. Lord, hurry up. Get me through this trial. If you could just get me, get me through this trouble, this, this suffering, this trial, this, this pain. Just get me through this. Just fast forward it, right? No. God says, wait right there. I got to talk to somebody and you're going to feel the, you're going to squirm a little bit in your trouble. But not because I, don't, I like your pain. You need to, you got to understand that there's a cross before the crown. There's a delay before the resurrection. And you have to trust me and not rush me. Do you ever feel like rushing Jesus? Let's just, maybe we should confess our sins here publicly, right? Don't we all feel like rushing God sometimes? And God will not be rushed. And it's good that he won't be rushed because he knows what's best for us. So to close, what should we do? We trust Jesus. Trust him to cleanse us from our spiritual uncleanness. Let's trust him to heal us from our spiritual sickness. Let's trust him to raise us from our spiritual death because when he does that, and he saves us from our sins, then we will get physical resurrection, we will get physical cleanness, and we will get physical healing forever and ever and ever. Trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, and we thank you that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. We thank you that he became weak so that we would be made strong. And now we have, the, we have the power now to trust in your timing because Jesus trusted in your timing. We thank you for his death and resurrection because when we are tempted to rush you, God, and let's, we just want to be honest now, Father, you already know our hearts. Even some of us right now, we want to rush you and you just will not be rushed. We thank you that you give us the power to be patient, the power to trust your timing because Jesus trusted your timing on the cross. And so, Father, we trust you now on this Father's Day. And we pray that you grow us in trusting you and we reflect that you are trustworthy to all of our friends and family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.